Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday, wherever you all may live, uh, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world. But for some of you, it might already be Saturday morning or midday Saturday. Um, but I'm glad to be on the air with you guys, and um, we have a lot of ground to uh, cover. But as I've said many of times before, we've always had lots of ground to cover. But <clears throat> the reason I say that is because... Uh, you know, I get 60 minutes, which is, you know, an hour to a podcast, and sometimes if we're not careful, time can slip away, and then we may run out of time to talk about what we wanted to talk about all along. Well, we might get achieve part of our objective, but if we're not careful, we might uh, lose out on not being able to discuss uh, what we really um, were hoping to uh, strive for, so um, that's why... Uh, you know, 60 minutes might seem like a long time, but in actuality, the time goes by um, rather quick. And of course, you know, I, I know that I might uh, provide lots of details to you all, but I feel that that's really the best way to get the stories across, uh, not just for the topic as a whole, but for uh, each segment, because it's one thing to um, paraphrase um, a topic. It's one thing to, um, you know, discuss something for a short amount of time. But, you know, if you only discuss it for a short amount of time, then you have to ask yourself, well, did you really focus on the nitty-gritty stuff? In other words, did you really feel as though you um, told a good story for a particular podcast um, segment, that is? So that's why I do feel that many of you all uh, have benefited from um, from as much detail as I can provide you all with because uh, it adds... Um, I don't know if I'd say suspense is the right word, but it just adds a lot of um, relevancy, uh, in my opinion. Well, in this uh, segment that we're going to be uh, focusing on with regards to uh, Jack Jewett, Revolutionary Rider, and the Ride to Save Virginia and the American Revolution by Judy Bloodgood Bander, in this uh, segment we're going to uh, learn um, where exactly uh, Thomas Jefferson and his family would eventually uh, retreat to, given that um, Jefferson, uh, thank heavens, uh, left in enough time. But when I say enough time, we're not talking 30 minutes, folks. So we're talking about f within five minutes, because after he left, it was within five-minute time frame afterwards. Remember that the British actually arrived at the um, main entranceway uh, to Monticello, and had Jefferson not recognized that his uh, sword had fallen off of him, he, uh, if he hadn't recognized that, then he would have made his way back, and he would have been captured. He pretty much would have been public enemy number one for the British, uh, and he would have been captured. He would have, um, there would have been no, uh, what do you call it, uh, conditions in terms of a, a prisoner exchange for him to be returned back. I mean, this was... Um, the ultimate uh, prize that the British were after. I mean, not just Virginia being the largest of the 13 states, but Virginia in terms of uh, who their governor was, given that he was the signer, not just the signer, but the uh, author of the Declaration of Independence, as well as a, um, a government uh, that was uh, very powerful, but also a state whose uh, territory went, you know, and what we now know is West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and even into the Great Lakes. So 
the granddaddy of them all was Virginia, and for England to capture Virginia would be um, would be the prize. And by capturing Virginia, then the other dominoes would start falling. That is the Carolinas, Georgia, all the South falling back under British control. And then just a matter of time before the middle and northern colonies uh, would fall in terms of their dominoes. Well, what I mean by dominoes is you know, each uh, individual domino uh, falling apart and not knowing if that domino will um, get back up and um, take a stand. So our first leadoff question will be the following. Where exactly did Governor Thomas Jefferson and his family eventually retreat to after staying at a friend's house come the evening of June 4th, 1781? I know I mentioned a moment ago that one of the things we were going to talk about was this right here, but it's not the uh, primary um, focal um, point for the entire podcast, but this is our leadoff question. So again, where exactly did Governor Thomas Jefferson and his family eventually retreat to after staying at a friend's house come the evening of June 4th, 1781. Well, let me ask you this. Did they go east of Charlottesville into Richmond, or did they go um, westward? Well, the answer is choice B. They went westward. The family retreated about 90 miles west over the course of multiple days, but they ended up taking a southwesterly turn. Now, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, owned land in Bedford County. For those of you uh, that know where Bedford County is, it's located between uh, Roanoke and Lynchburg. As a matter of fact, uh, Bedford County um, in World War II um, saw more of its young men die at D-Day um, aka Normandy, uh, France, than any other uh, city or town in uh, the United in, in America. So, in other words, Bedford was the number one town that um, sadly lost more of its uh, men from uh, D-Day in World War II than any other uh, town in America. Bedford lost about 19 or 20 of its men. And uh, long story short, my uh, paternal grandmother hailed from Bedford County. She lived there till she was about 10 years old, and uh, I remember her telling me years ago that uh, that her parents, being my great-grandparents, knew some of the uh, families who had lost uh, sons from uh, D-Day. So a very, um, very touching moment uh, in time, to say the least. So whenever you think of Bedford, uh, one of the things to think of is uh, is uh, D-Day, and there is a D-Day memorial honoring the men who uh, lost their lives from Bedford. And my wife and I went there years ago and saw the memorial. It was very uh, well worth doing. But something else uh, will stand out in uh, Bedford over time is that when uh, Jefferson and his family do retreat there, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, he did own land in Bedford County, but the land he owned, uh, he ended up inheriting from his late father-in-law, John Wales, uh, Martha's father. So the land in Bedford County, which ended up belonging to Jefferson, was known as Poplar Forest. And it was a, a farm, a farm property, but come the start of the 19th century, Poplar Forest became Mr. Jefferson's getaway retreat from Monticello. It, it also really became the first octagonal home of its kind uh, when it was um, finally uh, built in 1806. And uh, my, wife and I, my wife and I have been to Poplar Forest before, and uh, that's very well worth visiting, too. Uh, but yes, this is where Thomas Jefferson went 
uh, he went about, you know, think about it, 90 miles uh, southwest of Monticello just to avoid uh, being uh, captured by um, British forces under Colonel Banastray Tarleton. So you would think that uh, he's 90 miles away now from Charlottesville and that he'll be safe. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that Jefferson's other, um, I don't know if I'd say troubles are the right word, but uh, concerns pressing the state of Virginia are not going away. But then again, this is a crisis. I mean, this is a crisis that not only impacts Governor Jefferson and members of the Virginia legislature, but uh, it's a crisis that's impacting uh, the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. But then again, I think it's fair to say that none of the uh, other 12 states have, endure, have been immune from their uh, shares of uh, crises as well. Because this is a war that is going to either make or break the existence of America, given that, um, that 13 colonies with 56 delegates uh, came together and renounced their um, allegiance to the crown when they approved of the uh, Declaration of Independence five years earlier on July 4th of 1776. So our next question is the following. How long did uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton and his troops stay in Charlottesville? I'll give you some choices. Do you think they stayed a week? Do you think they stayed um, half a week? Or do you think they stayed for just one day? The answer is choice C. They actually stayed for just one day total. The day after, um, you know, they did spend about 18 hours at Monticello, probably thinking that Jefferson would come back, and he didn't. So Tarleton and his um, 180 Loyalist soldiers left on June the 5th. And they left on June the 5th because of a rainstorm that was coming, which had potential to flood the Ravana River, which meant that Tarleton and his um, Dragoon forces would not have been able to have successfully crossed the river. And if they, even if they had tried to cross the river in a rainstorm, many of those men would not have survived. Their horses would not have been either too. Uh, the floods would have pretty much um, swept them away. So by leaving earlier they would have avoided perhaps a worst-case uh, scenario catastrophe. However, uh, Tarleton's troops um, did not, um, what do you call it, leave Charlottesville unnoticed. But And what I mean by that is that um, Tarleton's troops destroyed many of Albemarle County's uh, records, including arms and other provisions in uh, Greater Charlottesville. So in other words, you know, it's one thing to leave, but if you're going to leave, you might want to, if you're the enemy, you want to make sure that you don't leave anything behind that would give, um, that would give the uh, regulars or the locals any means of surprising um, an attack on um, the greater um, superiority of the British uh, presence. Here's another question for you all. Uh, besides Thomas Jefferson's life being spared thanks to Jack Jewett's 40-mile ride into the night, were many other Virginians' lives saved? Do you all believe that many other uh, Virginians' lives were saved? I would hope that we would say yes, and the answer is yes. Were many uh, well prominent uh, Virginians whom served in the um, State legislature, or I should say in the General Assembly, uh, were their lives spared? Yes. 
How about men from Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, Archibald Carey, Benjamin Harrison V, Brigadier General Thomas Nelson Jr. to John Tyler Sr. John Tyler Sr. was the father of uh, John Tyler Jr., who would uh, one day become uh, President of the United States. So yes, many uh, well-to-do uh, Virginians were uh, spared, thanks in part to Jack Jewett's uh, ride and getting the word out, because remember, even when Jewett himself first warned uh, members of the Virginia General Assembly that the British were making their way into Charlottesville, many of them um, simply didn't know uh, what to believe. They didn't really take Jewett's um, warning seriously, but Jewett was persistent, and had it not been for his persistence, there is a very strong likelihood that um, that some of these men, uh, along with Thomas Jefferson, would have been uh, captured, because it wasn't just uh, Governor Thomas Jefferson who was public enemy number one for the British. It would be fair to say that men like Patrick Henry, men like Richard Henry Lee, and any of the other um, people's names I just mentioned would have been equivalent of being a public enemy number one. Why don't we uh, talk about uh, briefly about a few of these uh, people. I thought I probably would have had more time uh, when preparing for this podcast uh, segment to be able to discuss, um, say, four or five men whose lives were spared, but then I realized with everything else that needed to be discussed that it would be best to narrow it down. So I don't want you all to think that, you know, if I didn't mention Patrick Henry's name, that I didn't want someone to think, why didn't you mention his name, Kurt? Do you you not think he's relevant? Well, of course I think he's relevant. But remember, as I said earlier, 60 minutes, there's a lot to cover. And, you know, while, yes, I, I do believe it is important to tell everything that there is possible in terms of getting the story right, sometimes um, there have to be some uh, changes at the last minute. And it doesn't mean that those changes are bad. What it just means is that, you know, I have to decide, hey, what is worth sharing with you all and what might need to be omitted that may not be on the same caliber of uh, significant importance. So anyways, let's uh, learn about a fellow named uh, Archibald Carey. And for those of you uh, who live in Richmond around the Malvern Manor area, there is a street called Carey Street. And there's also Carytown. Carey Street would be named after uh, Mr. Archibald Carey. He was a member of the House of Burgesses from 1756 to 1774. And what I found very unique about Mr. Carey was that he was a chairman to the committee that authorized the Virginia delegates to declare independence from England at the Second Continental Congress. You know, oftentimes it's very easy to think that, okay, if uh, the delegates who were in Philadelphia at the Second Continental Congress, if they, it's easy to assume that they were the ones that just automatically made the choices on their own to uh, renounce their allegiance to the crown. No, it it turns out that each of the uh, colonies um, had people back um, in their um, home states who um, were on uh, committees as well. And it would have also consisted of a chairperson. And that chairperson would have been the one to authorize the delegates of, say, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. I mean, I can go down the whole line, but think about it. Those chair people 
or chairmans uh, from each of the uh, colonies would have been the ones to have given instructions uh, for their uh, delegates um, in Philadelphia to um, vote on um, approving uh, the motion as well as uh, going forward and uh, renouncing their uh, separation from England. So yes, Archibald, Mr. Archibald Carey had that uh, high distinction of uh, being the uh, head chairperson on the committee that authorized the Virginia delegates to declare their independence from England at the Second Continental Congress. Another uh, man I've uh, learned about before, but uh, didn't really know a whole lot about him until I did some research, and his name was Brigadier General Thomas Nelson, Jr., uh, like Archibald Carey, uh, Mr. Nelson served in the House of Burgesses, but, but he didn't serve as long in the House of Burgesses like Archibald Carey did. Uh, Thomas Nelson Jr., uh, the highlight of his time in the House of Burgesses came around 1774 when the Burgesses uh, was dissolved. And what we have to keep in mind is that in Virginia, the House of Burgesses was dissolved more than once. But after the French and Indian War, that's when um, repeated instances of the Burgesses or the institution of the House of Burgesses got dissolved, largely because of the uh, growing uh, conflict between um, England and the colonies. So for Brigadier General Thomas Nelson Jr., um, yes, he was in the House of Burgesses come 1774 when uh, Royal Governor uh, John Murray, or better known as Lord Dunmore, uh, dissolved the House of Burgesses with, in regards to uh, Burgess members passing res resolutions in opposition to Parliament's intolerable, a.k.a. coercive acts. And for those of you who are new uh, to my uh, podcast uh, series, or just new to um, listening to my uh, podcasts, rather, I should say, and for those of you who have been with me uh, for some time, here's just a, a refresher, and for those of you, um, here's a chance to get acquainted with, um, rel with uh, significant history during this time. In 1774, uh, Parliament uh, passed a series of measures that were all... Um, combined into one act known as the um, Coercive Acts, but of course in uh, the colonies they got known as the Intolerable Acts. Basically, they were, they're really known as two names, the Coercive Acts and the Intolerable Acts. But these measures just weren't passed overnight. They were largely um, attributed to what took place in December of 1773, and for those of you who were with me when we discussed American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution, remember those, um, oh, close to about 90 um, patriots who uh, disguised themselves as Mohawk Indians? They uh, refused to let... Um, the captains of those uh, three vessels, the Beaver, the Eleanor, and the Dartmouth, who made their way into Boston's harbor on the night of December 16th of 1773. Uh, well, they were already there. The ships got there before the 16th of 1773. Oftentimes we've been told that all three ships got there on the same night of December 16th, 1773, but that's not how it happened. Uh, the bottom line is that the um, is that the captains needed to unload 
the the tea off of their ships in order to uh, send them to a, a local uh, customs warehouse where once the tea was released, then it could be sold to the um, minority who uh, were, what do you call it, the uh, biggest um, consumers of the, uh, of the tea itself, those who were basically loyal to the crown. And there were uh, very, very uh, well-known, prominent uh, loyalist merchants, and you also had prominent loyalist families like the Hutchinsons and the Olivers, who were very uh, dependent upon the, uh, upon this uh, tea uh, from the East India Tea Company, who uh, had what we would say a far more of a surplus of tea, but not enough uh, consumers uh, to buy the tea. So this is long story short a. Um, classic example of uneven distribution between supply and demand. Well, long story short, the um, uh, the owners of these ships uh, were unable to um, unload their uh, cargo, that is the tea, and there were other um, types of cargo on their vessels, but um, to avoid uh, further um, nasty confrontations, uh, those uh, 90-some men who uh, were disguised as Mohawk Indians peacefully escorted the uh, captains of the vessels away from their boats and sent them to a secure location where where they would not be um, harmed, where they would not be tarred and feathered, but the um, patriots disguised as Indians uh, basically went about taking over 300, it was about 342 chests of tea it was, and they basically destroyed those chests of tea and dumped them into um, Boston's Harbor, the waters of Boston's Harbor. And in the days afterwards, uh, bystanders did see chests of tea washed along shore. And believe it or not, there is still a uh, tea chest uh, preserved at, um, at a museum in Boston, that is fully intact uh, from uh, the night of December 16th, 1773, which is a miracle unto itself that any one tea chest alone could still have been preserved after almost 250 years. So, long story short, the incident that took place, as we know, is the Boston Tea Party um, led Parliament when they found, when they got word of this, it angered. Um, many in Parliament to the point where they decided to uh, pass these uh, coercive acts, one of them being the uh, closure of Boston's port. Okay, Boston's port gets closed. So what happens, folks? The port, um, there's going to be a new port in Massachusetts. It's going, to, it's going to be moved north to Salem. Of course, when I think of Salem, I think of the infamous uh, witchcraft trials of 1692. And uh, when I and also uh, for Salem, that's going to be the new uh, makeshift temporary capital of Massachusetts. So, uh, you know, it's one thing to close the port of Boston, but is it fair to say that so many in uh, Massachusetts are dependent upon the port of Boston? Yes, they are. People's livelihoods, folks, are now destroyed. People, men, are left out of work. We don't have any rope makers. We don't have uh, caulkers. We don't have. Um, Shipbuilders, we don't have um, anyone in manufacturing um, making masts for the ships. I mean, we don't have I mean, shops are closed. I mean, how are um, merchants going to be able to make a living? Uh, so 
all of the vessels that were coming in and out of Boston's harbor are now going to be relocated to Salem. So for many in Boston, they're going to face even a food shortage too. They're not, I mean, many people could easily die because of uh, starvation and uh, malnutrition, more, more so from starvation. And you've got people packed in tight quarters. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that people could just die in droves. So for uh, Brigadier General Thomas Nelson, he took it upon himself to use some of his own personal money by sending supplies to Boston's people whom were all impacted by the port closure. And he wasn't the only one to um, use some of his own personal money by sending supplies northward. Uh, Thomas Jefferson went as far as saying that um, that with the port closure in Boston should also be seen as a day of fasting. In other words, we should hold back on how much food that we consume and pray for those whom are in need of, of necessary provisions. So colonies like Virginia, colonies like uh, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and, and yes, Philadelphia is a huge uh, hot spot for loyalists. New York is too. But it turns out that many of the 13 colonies, even as far south as in South Carolina, um, men uh, from Charleston in the South Carolina State Legislature went as far as saying that, hey, if Parliament has now has the authority to close the port of Boston, then we could be next. You know, think about it. Charleston, South Carolina could be next. Uh, Philadelphia could, uh, as crazy as it might sound, because given the fact that there are a lot of loyalists there, but the bottom line is that, hey, if one major city's port is closed, there is no guarantee that any other of America's port cities would, would be immune. So thank heavens that uh, Brigadier General Thomas Nelson Jr. was uh, kind enough to put aside whatever ambitions he might have had with his money and use whatever he knew was necessary by sending supplies to Boston's people whom were impacted by the port closure. I should also point out, too, real quick, that under the uh, coercive acts, that if one committed a crime in the colonies, guess where they would get tried? They wouldn't get tried in their home state where the offense occurred. They would just get automatically sent over to England, be tried for the crime, and if found guilty, they would uh, either um, rot away in jail or they would be executed. So in other words, you know, it's one thing to commit a crime in Virginia, but why send someone to England when the crime didn't even happen there? And another thing I should point out, too, with these intolerable acts is that uh, Parliament pretty much shut down town hall meetings in Massachusetts. Parliament pretty much said, hey, look, if, if anybody wants to conduct a town hall meeting, they're going to have to get permission from their superiors, meaning um, British presence. They'll have to go to a magistrate, a Brit British magistrate, and ask to conduct a meeting. And it also means that British presence will have to be on site. So in other words, these coercive acts were, um, they were a little bit of everything, impacting business, impacting the ability to, um, to no longer conduct a, a proper trial by jury, and all juries were uh, packed with loyalists. 
So in other words, there's no uh, impartiality. There's no, there's no process of voir dire. That is the process of selecting an impartial jury. So a lot of things are changing by 1774, when 1774 um, came about, rather, I should say. What I also found interesting about Brigadier General Thomas Nelson Jr. is that there is a county in Virginia, not far from Charlottesville, called Nelson County, which is named in his honor, and there is a, uh, a Nelson County in Kentucky, which is also named after him. Of course, when I think of the of Nelson County, I think of um, of uh, what happened back in 1969. Uh, Hurricane Camille came through. Of course, I wasn't alive. I was born 10 years after Camille, but my dad remembers all too well what happened. Um, it was a hurricane like that was that had never been seen before in Virginia. It basically dumped about 30 mile, 30 inches of rain in about five or six hours on um, Nelson County and the outlying areas of uh, Nelson County. People woke up in the middle of the night and saw their homes uh, being um, uprooted. And uh, many homes uh, pretty much washed away along the um, river, along the rivers. Um, one town, um, it's uh, known as uh, Colleen, apparently um, probably about, about 50 or just over 50 people um, perished. And to this day, their bodies have never been found. I remember my dad uh, telling me that uh, my grandfather course, he served with uh, with the Lynchburg Fire Department for a number of years, and uh, shortly after all the devastation had occurred, uh, my grandfather um, did went out on a special um, operation um, mission along with other firefighters, and I believe my dad went as a volunteer, and they canvassed everywhere in Colleen, and the devastation was so bad that you know no no one was ever found. Uh, these uh, 50 people who lost their lives and to this day they've never been accounted for so it's um that was that was a very sad uh moment in nelson county's history but at the same time nelson county has made a phenomenal um comeback since that time but uh, whenever you think of nelson county definitely think of brigadier general thomas nelson jr there might be a likelihood that we might be mentioning his name again here soon all right, but here's our next question. Were any uh, Virginians of high status uh, captured by uh, Bannistray, uh, Colonel Bannistray Tarleton and his troops? Yes, men from James Hayes to Dudley Diggs, a Judge Peter Lyons to a Dr. Thomas Walker, and how about a fellow named Daniel Boone? Daniel Boone, it turns out, folks, was the last of Virginia's General Assemblymen to leave Charlottesville after Jack Jewett had warned everyone to leave. Daniel Boone was securing papers and public records from falling into the enemy hands. His rank was that of captain. I'm not sure who called out Daniel Boone's name, but they said to him, they said captain. And when the British, when the British heard that this Daniel Boone was a captain, he was placed under arrest, but was released a day after. Daniel Boone had served as a, a delegate representing Fayette County. Now, I know there's no such thing as Fayette County in Virginia, but Fayette County is out in uh, present-day Kentucky. So, believe it or not, folks, Daniel Boone, being a member of the Virginia General Assembly, was representing what we now know as present-day Kentucky. So when we think of Virginia General Assembly in the 18th century, it's not confined to just Virginia. 
we we're, we're talking Tennessee, Kentucky, present day Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, and maybe uh, Illinois, Indiana, for all we know, but probably more so West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Daniel Boone, if there's one thing we all remember him for, he helped spark a westward uh, migration into Kentucky, where over 200,000 people eventually made their way into what we now know as Kentucky via the Cumberland Gap. The majority of the uh, Patriot prisoners who were uh, captured by Tarleton's uh, forces, folks, were sent to a place called Elk Hill. As a matter of fact, I'm very familiar with Elk Hill. It's in uh, Goochland County, and there's a mile marker, um, and I pass by it every time I uh, go um, out that way. Uh, more so, I pass, I go out this way more often and I've been doing this uh, since uh, February when I started a new uh, side job at uh, Bird Cellars Winery. And how ironic that my wife and I are uh, wine club members there, but it's a fantastic winery to go to. So if any of you uh, from Virginia um, are looking to visit a new winery, uh, come to Bird Cellars. It's very well uh, worth the visit. And uh, you never know, I might uh, pour you all a flight of wine or a glass of wine, but it's a, it's a great little winery. But anyways... Um, the majority of the Patriot prisoners that were captured by Colonel Banistre Tarleton's forces were sent to this place called Elk Hill in Goochland County. It was a, a plantation of Thomas Jefferson's that actually was on his uh, wife's side of the family. General um, Cornwallis and his men um, uh, occupied Jefferson's uh, property for 10 days where they cut large swath of destruction. They left nothing behind. They damaged a countless array of crops, seized livestock, burned buildings, and even worse, folks, Cornwallis and Tarleton's men carried off 30 enslaved people whom ended up getting housed with other slaves that were already suffering from diseases like smallpox to typhus. Many of them ultimately died. What a horrible thing to do. It's one thing to capture someone, but then to house them with, um, with other people, regardless of whether they were uh, other slaves or just people in general who were suffering from disease, only to expose innocent people who were taken against their own will. Who, who were probably healthy as a horse. Now, all of a sudden, they, they're dying. Not just they're dying, but they're going to die. No matter what side you are in a war, even if you're neutral, you're not guaranteed to survive, even if you're an innocent bystander. And sadly, we're seeing that in the world today with this crisis in Ukraine. So many innocent bystanders are dying. People are, are, are dying left and right. And those who are surviving even if they wanted to go back to Ukraine, their, their home, their lives will, would never be the same. But then again, is anyone's life the same when it's in a time of war? Probably not. Colonel Tarleton held prisoners of lower class status with little regards, meaning these men weren't eligible for prisoner exchanges, unlike men of officer rank status whom had more to offer. So if you were a colonel... Uh, a brigadier general or lieutenant colonel, 
if you um, were a prisoner and you had uh, not shown any aggression to your captors and there were enough there was enough of a match on the other side for a prisoner exchange to take place then the chances of you getting um, released were pretty good but if you didn't have any if you were just a what do you call it, a private or a basic 101 guy the chances of you being released are going to be very slim you might as well know that you could be spending whatever days you have left of your life behind bars and sadly die a very um, uh, agonizing death because the British for the most part did not ha have a lot of mercy or compassion towards American prisoners and we know that uh, mo most notably through the um, through the uh, British um, ships of war that were used as uh, makeshift prisons, most notably in New York and uh, down in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Why were British forces so successful behind dominating, behind dominating Virginia from all corners, or I should say from all ends? I think that's a great question, and I think it needs to be addressed. Well, for starters, the British had entire control over the rivers including uh, well-known ones like the James, the Potomac, York, and Rappahannock. Um, they also had ac access um, to uh, the Chickahominy uh, River as well as um, the Appomattox River. But due to the fact that the British had superior control over these rivers and enabled uh, their soldiers, or I should say their greater forces, to mobilize faster, by means of uh, boats, where the boats alone could transport men, uh, soldiers, that is, up and down the rivers, along with their horses. And these, and these aren't just rivers by themselves, folks. The rivers I just mentioned, folks, being the um, James, the York, Potomac, uh, Rappahannock. And uh, this river uh, wasn't a factor, but uh, Virginia does have five rivers that are vital to this uh, main uh, watershed being the largest on the east coast of the United States. Uh, the fifth river being the Shenandoah River in the valley, or Virginia Shenandoah Valley, rather. But all of the rivers I just mentioned, though, the four being the James, Potomac, York, and Rappahannock, they, those, all four of those rivers are linked to the Chesapeake Bay. Think about it, folks. The Chesapeake Bay, it was un, it was unguarded. Uh, it didn't have a whole lot of, um, it didn't have enough of a fortress to be able to protect the British. I mean, to protect Americans' forces and people of the uh, grave threat of British ships coming in and out of the uh, Chesapeake Bay waters. So, secondly, the British under Cornwallis had a full force of seven thousand troops, which meant that they were better trained, better equipped and could outmaneuver all Patriot forces throughout the state. Well, think about it. If you're Marquis de Lafayette and you only have about 1,200 able men, yeah, you are at a huge disadvantage going up against 7,000 men on the British side. Maybe not, not in one battle, but just the overall um, population or size of the troops on both sides. That tells you right there just how... Um, just how big the imbalance itself was. Uh, lastly, British forces comprised of 500 mounted infantry. In mounted infantry, we think of the Dragoons. Uh, they uh, could fight um, 
They could uh, fight the enemy by horse, you know, mounted infantry. You could think of cavalry, but they could also get off their horse and um, fire, um, fire uh, into the into enemy hands, um, fifty or a hundred yards away. So these um, mounted infantry or dragoons were better equipped to navigate territory, not just by getting off their horse, for example, and firing onto the enemy, but um, they could navigate the territory much faster. Think about it. That that was the success in the Carolinas, most notably South Carolina, where um, American forces um, had um, had as much access to horses as, say, the British did. And um, it's one thing to move uh, an army by foot, but sometimes moving an army by foot is going to take longer in terms of uh, navigation, navigational uh, purposes. Whereas if you were able to navigate um, by horse, you will be able to get to um, get from point A to point B much faster. So the British obviously had enough uh, horses to where they uh, could get to and from point A to point B very quickly. Well, how many cavalry uh, horses did the Patriot Militia have? It's not anywhere close to what the British had. I'll give you a number. It's between 50 and 75. It was 60. The Patriot Militia had 60 cavalry horses total. But prior to and during the Revolutionary War, there were laws on the books keeping militia forces from doing what, folks? The laws on the books kept militia forces from taking other people's horses against their own will. If one owned a horse, was that a big deal? Yes. And you could say that probably anywhere in the 13 colonies, but I would definitely say maybe in Virginia it was a big deal considering just how big Virginia was of the 13 uh, colonies. But if a if another man stole another man's, if, if one man stole another man's horse, the man uh, who would be the thief stealing the uh, other man's horse, the thief would be stealing that man's livelihood. Think about it. We all need to get around from point A to point B, but not everyone has access to a horse. So when someone has a horse and they can get from point A to point B, they are getting to their uh, destination much faster than the average Joe who is going to ha have no other choice but to walk just to get to where he needs to go. So, yes, there were laws on the books, folks, keeping um, militia forces from taking other people's horses against their own will, even in times of, of uncertainty or crisis. But even the wealthy, believe it or not, folks, even the wealthy weren't immune. How so? because British troops seized their horses, leaving Patriot forces throughout all of Virginia at a tremendous disadvantage. So, yeah, some of you all are probably wondering, well, did, the, did British forces who came over from England bring their horses with them? Very few of them probably did. So how, where are they going to get horses? They're going to find ways to um, impress those on the enemy side if it means... Uh, setting their homes ablaze, but yet taking whatever livestock they can, as well as the horse. Because after all, the horse is the most coveted possession of animals of that time, because horses, you know, you can ride a horse, 
but you can also get from point A to point B. So, yeah, the, uh, the Patriot forces are at a huge uh, disadvantage here, folks. Okay, where in Stanton, uh, Virginia, did General Assembly members convene? They used a church uh, for their meeting place, which also served as a temp as the temporary Virginia uh, capital location. And Stanton, folks, is west of Charlottesville. Um, as a matter of fact, if you get to, depending on where you live, I know where I live, if I wanted to get from here to Stanton, I'd just go Interstate 64 west and then get on Interstate 81 north. Now, how many um, members of the Virginia General Assembly convened in Stanton between June 7th and the 23rd of 1781. I'll give you a number. It was, um, it's between 80 and 90. The answer is 82. There were 21 senators and 61 delegates. They were there between June 7th and the 23rd of 1781 to conduct business. But once upon arrival into Stanton, what happens? There was no permanent leader in charge, given Governor Thomas Jefferson had resigned his post back on June the 2nd and was nowhere near Stanton. Jefferson family is seeking shelter in Bedford County, Poplar Forest. That doesn't mean, though, that Jefferson is, um, has completely um, abandoned this, but no one knows that he has uh, resigned. So Virginia doesn't have a governor, folks. That's a, cri that's, a, that's a crisis unto itself. Jefferson eventually learned of a General Assembly meeting in Stanton, but the legislature alone found it hard to begin conducting business, considering that Mr. Dudley Diggs resigned from the Executive Council president post around the time government was relocated to Charlottesville. The executive council didn't hold a meeting to choose his, his successor, which would have been uh, David Jameson, but he was still in Richmond. So remember, folks, we don't have telephones. We can't call up and say, hey, you've got to come here ASAP because we've got to find a way to function. We need someone next in line. <laughs> However, um, Jefferson um, did write a letter uh, to Dr. William Fleming, as well as to uh, Colonel Andrew Lewis. Matter of fact, uh, what's interesting about William Fleming is that uh, Dr. Fleming and Patrick Henry are related to one another. They are uh, brother-in-laws. Dr. Fleming had been absent since April from, um, from attending uh, legislative affairs, but it turns out that come June the 13th, uh, Fleming, uh, he had already responded to Jefferson's letter and agreed to go to Stanton, he became the only representative of the executive council present. And this executive council is a upper uh, body uh, council that presided over all meetings without, well, I take it back. Uh, Fleming uh, presided over all the meetings without ever having been named acting governor. So he was his own, he was basically the interim governor, but yet he, he was never formally declared interim governor. What did assembly members vote and agree upon between June 10th and the 12th of 1781? The House of Delegates on June the 10th agreed unanimously to have another alternative meeting place. Seriously, another alternative meeting place? Yes, that's how worried they, they were. And you know what? If I was alive back then and in the General Assembly, I guess I would have had no other choice but to have said, hey, we might as well come up with another uh, 
temporary uh, spot to convene because we don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, think about it. This is their version of 9-11 of, of sorts. So they agreed unanimously to have another alternative meeting place in the event in the event British forces c came into Stanton. The House would meet at Warm Springs, which is now present-day West Virginia. Come June the 12th, men from William Cabell, Samuel Hardy to Samuel McDowell got elected to the Council of State. And the Council of State, folks, is the governing body that advised the governor of all matters in which decisions needed to be made upon with um, proper consent. In other words, this body basically, um, basically told the governor, hey, um, of what legislation, of what laws were passed by the uh, House of Delegates and whether or not those laws should go into effect or if a law should be vetoed or if a law should be sent back to the House of Delegates for uh, further uh, revisions. June 18th saw Thomas Nelson Jr. become sworn in as the new official governing leader, a.k.a. governor. From the time Jefferson stepped down back on June the set the second until now June 18th, Virginia had gone 16 days without having a true commander in chief within the Commonwealth. That's about two weeks, folks. That's just that's two weeks and uh, two days. Th those were um, trying times, to say the least. Uh, shortly after Governor Thomas Nelson became the governor, the capital did relocate back to its previous location being Charlottesville. Governor Nelson was frequently ill, but when he and his council met, he and his council met twice while in Charlottesville. July 3rd, the General Assembly departed from Charlottesville back east to Richmond. However, Governor Nelson did not come back for another two weeks. <laughs> leaving Virginia once again vulnerable. However, Governor Nelson did something um, different. He put a plan into place where he had, where he had men below him like Lieutenant Gov Governor David Jameson to War Commissioner William Davies fill in for him. Uh, and this was largely in part because Governor Nelson uh, was, was very ill and um, endured um, many um, asthma attacks. You know, think about it. They didn't have any, uh, what do you call it, those uh, bronchial inhalers or inhalators uh, back then uh, to help those who, um, who would have uh, dealt with asthma-related issues like they have today. Were Virginia's leaders in 1776 skeptical of any powerful government? Yes, they were. They saw all the injustices that uh, the king, that the crown and, and parliament had imposed upon her subjects, being the 13 colonies, without their uh, formal consent. So many, if not all, of Virginia's leaders feared that a strong, powerful government would have the potential to do what, people? To deprive people's rights. Of course, people's rights is vague. Because, you know, of course, some people would say, well, did everybody have the same rights in 1776? And I will admit, no. But in a time of crisis, it's fair to say that the uh, Virginia's government leaders were probably referring when it was when it came to people's rights, that is, people who were involved directly in the government. The Virginia Constitution of 1776 provided 
a bill of rights protecting people from an assortment of unfair abuses. The British invasion, however, uh, that took place come 1781 in Virginia did greatly impact Thomas Jefferson's ability behind delegating any broader powers not specified under the state's constitution of 1776. Yes, that was a setback for Governor Jefferson, but um, come uh, between June 7th and June 23rd, um, several new measures got put into play that um, that were uh, at, that came at the right place at the right time. It looks like maybe now Virginia could be digging itself out from the dark and now seeing um, a broader light at the end of the tunnel. So, what were some of these new measures? Well that gave Governor Nelson broader powers in times of crisis, a.k.a. war. Governor Nelson and any other governor going forward would now have the power to call out the militia, along with exercising power to seize property amongst those whom refused and participating. So if you were a member of the militia and did not want and chose not to participate um, in a time of um, crisis, then guess what? The governor now has the power to have uh, people within his inner, inner circle come out and seize Mr. Jones's property. I'd think twice before uh, challenging the governor in, in a time of crisis if I'm in Virginia. The militia saw improvements ranging from equal pay on the same scale with Continental Army soldiers, including extension of service, where... It had previously been two months, now it went to three months. Those whom had previously deserted now returned to duty because of the militia reforms now put into play. Virginia had come away stronger in the aftermath of enduring one of its darkest periods during the American Revolutionary War. You know, October hasn't come yet, folks, but I can say that... Um, what happened between June 7th and the 23rd was um, was an act of God. I mean, did it make it right that that Colonel Bannister Tarleton and his men had almost um, had pretty much laid waste to so much of Virginia, including Cornwallis and even you know Benedict Arnold? No, it didn't make it right. Is it unfortunate that maybe Virginia was a little too slow to respond? Well, I wouldn't say we were slow to respond. The problem is that, you know, we were doing everything that was asked of us. We were sending troops northward uh, when the campaigns in the northern and the middle colonies were taking place battlefield-wise. We were sending men uh, south, uh, during the, most notably during the uh, Carolinas, uh, the Carolina campaign in the north and, uh, north and south Carolina. The problem is that we did not have enough men to defend, um, to defend the Commonwealth from within. We just didn't think that um, an attack would happen. And even though, yes, we relocated um, the capital of Charlottesville, thinking that that was enough wilderness to protect, even wilderness alone, wilderness by itself isn't immune, folks. So I'm sure many of you all are now beginning to wonder, what do we talk about next? Well, when I'm on the air again next, uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about how um, 1781 will eventually end, but we're also going to learn a little bit more about um, about various odds and ends, if that's probably a better way of summing it up. But 
I will say this, whatever odds and ends we do learn, it's going to be relevant. And uh, it is fair to say that Jack Jewett has, um, he, you know, without Jack Jewett, Governor Jefferson would be captured. And a host of other um, prominent Virginians whom avoided being captured would have been captured. And it's very fair to say that uh, Jefferson, Patrick Henry, if all those men were captured, they would um, have been sent somewhere where they probably would not have seen an ounce of daylight, and they would have eventually gotten transported to England, been tried for their, um, been tried for the, uh, ch for the charges brought against them, and would have been uh, executed. So, Virginia has survived at this at this point, folks. Virginia has um, has made its way out of the ashes, and is now beginning to see more of a light at the end of the tunnel. But the light at the end of the tunnel is not completely lit just yet. We've still got some other hurdles to get through to. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air next time. And uh, for those of you who have been listening uh, to my podcast for some time, thank you very much. Uh, without you all, my faithful 101 uh, Anchor podcast listeners, I'm not sure where I would be. So uh, thank you again for everything, and uh, continue to listen, continue to get the word out. Uh, because this is what um, this is what uh, makes podcasting so great. Uh, thank you again, and wherever you all may live, stay safe for now.